Hey, welcome all to another episode of the Lighthouse Podcast. Super excited to have you join us today because it's one of my favorite, favorite guests and a friend and um, part of the Lighthouse family for a long time. What you might be noticing right now is you're only hearing my voice. Um, my my co-host is out today, and so you just have me, but don't worry, he's on the actual episode. So before we get to our amazing guest, I would love, if you guys have been listening for a while, or maybe this is even your first time with the Lighthouse Podcast, if you could just take a minute to go wherever you get your podcast from and rate and review, it would mean so much to us. It would also make our podcast more accessible to people that it could possibly help. So, And we appreciate all of you, whether this is your first time listening or you've been listening for a while. We just appreciate y'all. So today, I am not lying. This is one of my favorite guests. Today's guest is Dr. Susan Conradson. So Susan, is a she's a mom, first of two kids, Annalise and Dakin. She's also a licensed clinical psychologist and is currently an associate professor of psychology, the director of the Signature Experience Program, and the director of women's and gender studies at Berry College in Rome, Georgia. So when, when Susan was in grad school, she got to work in pediatric oncology within hospitals. And so she talks a lot today about how her experience there kind of granted her some really great insights into the psychological aspects, family dynamics, and resources kind of needed for families navigating childhood cancer. Susan and the kids, longtime volunteers at Lighthouse. She is so fun. She brings a group of college students with her every summer to serve. And let me just tell you, they are my favorite people to serve with. Um, big fans of Dr. Conradson. So today, Susan's going to share some really great insights to parents on supporting siblings, which has always been near and dear to my heart. So her expertise and experience, she just equips families with the tools and knowledge needed to navigate just this whole journey. So she emphasizes a couple things today, open communication and also fostering a sense of inclusion for siblings. I really think you're going to find this episode as helpful as I did. So let's listen in. Well, hey, Susan, welcome to the Lighthouse Podcast. Super glad you said yes to join us. Um, for our listeners, will you give them a little bit of background on how you became a clinical psychologist? Hi, yes, sure. Um, while I was at a uh, university of Georgia, I originally started out pre-med. Hang on. Can I pause oh, you real gosh, quick for a second? Yeah. Go dogs. Go he, dogs. He has to do that. He, he can't continue <laughs> until that has said, now you can talk you can more continue. about you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> so while I was at my amazing school, um, I was pre-med and then I took a abnormal psychology class my sophomore year and I just fell in love with the content. So I came back and said, you know what? I don't want to go to med school. I want to become a clinical psychologist. And so I switched my major. And then the process is um, right after grad school, I mean, undergrad, I applied to grad school um, and I went up to University of Louisville and went straight into a PhD program in clinical psych. And while I was there, uh, I completed a master's degree but when I finished, um, I was really interested in the intersection of medicine and psychology. So I did a year residency at the Medical College of Georgia. And mm -hmm. then um, I did a year fellowship at Emory where I worked in infectious diseases. Oh, wow. So the process is you go to school for five years, you do a residency, and then I did a fellowship and then did the licensing exams and then decided I wanted to go into academia. Wow. After wow, my that, jaw is kind of dropped here yeah, a little that's bit. That's a lot of things. Because I've known you a really long time. I did not know that whole resume. Yes, well, 
It's not usually something you just say, hi, let me tell you all my academic credentials. Yeah. And I did not know you were a bulldog. That's even more oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah. Going back to that. I mean, that priorities. That's even better, right? Right. She mentioned that first. Okay, so um, small world. So I was in an abnormal psych class at Georgia and um, I, it had the opposite effect on me. I went in as a psych major and came out of that really? class going, yeah, I don't think I want to do this. I think I'm good. Yeah. I didn't know that about you. Yep. So. Did it freak you out a little bit? No, I was no? just like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I want to do this forever. Hmm. Um, it was very interesting. Yeah. I really enjoyed the class, but it taught me that's not what I want to do. So what did you switch your major to then? Uh, which time? <laughs> <laughs> he can give you a resume list of that situation. Yeah, that one, I think right after that I went to business, but I was only business for about a semester and then I ended up in exercise science and that's what I finished with. I graduated exercise science. But... And it's funny how that same class can have a complete different you know, yeah. impact. Yeah. I found the yeah. content fascinating. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, during grad school, you also train, you train in pediatric psychology. So I'd love to hear about your specific role as it pertains to kids on treatment. Yeah. So um, as part of a pediatric psychology in grad school, I was one of the consults. So we would go into the peds units mm -hmm. and my job was um, I would meet and it was children with any sort of reason why they were in the hospital. Um, so I'd go in and do evaluations, assessments, looking for things like, are there any psychological issues, any behavioral issues? Um, is there any sort of diagnoses we need to kind of think about? Um, but also really the main thing is, is we're looking to see what can we as psychologists do to help the child and to help the family? Um, it could range from how do you help them get ready for uh, an invasive procedure? Um, how do you help them, you know, think about, like we would actually use like um, dolls and give shots to dolls or different things like that. Like how do you lower anxiety? Whatever it is that the family or the child needed, that's, that's what we would try to do um, as a pediatric consult. Uh, and like we would also be involved in how to we, how can we help them adhere to the treatment. Um, so for instance, like my master's thesis was in cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. um, so specifically looking at how do family factors play a role in compliance with a really complex treatment regimen with the ultimate goal of it's always what can we do to help? Like how can we help the family and the child adjust the best? So that's what we did. Very interesting. So what inspired you then to then make this crossover and teach a college class with psychology and then pediatric oncology? Okay, so this was actually, for me, it was a total God thing. Um, I actually, I volunteered for the first time with my children at Lighthouse in 2013. And North Point um, Community Church was having like a Lighthouse volunteer gathering. And Chris, you were actually up on the stage talking about how people could get involved. And I was just sitting there and this idea came to me. I, I honestly, it just really popped into my head on like, it was like, Susan, you could teach a class where you could combine your expertise in this area and peds that I hadn't used as a, as an academic, you know, um, teaching undergrad and that I could pull in all these different experiences that I had, I could create a class and then I could have students take this class, but then bring some of them with me. And then they'd get this amazing opportunity to serve and work alongside families experiencing cancer. 
So this idea just, it came to me sitting in the, the row at North Point Community Church while you were talking. No kidding. Oh my gosh. Huh. Look what you started. Well, that's what, I mean, yeah. that's, uh, that's what that's what God started in her brain, just sitting there getting connected to Lighthouse. But that's really cool. I had no idea that's where it it came from. Honestly, I thought you were doing the class, because I've known you a long time, Susan. I thought you were doing the class um, before Lighthouse stuff. I thought that's just, just how you kind of got connected. So that is really cool to hear that's where it came. That's where it came out of. And I, I, I was ne- something like this had never been done um, at Barry or anywhere I knew of. So I actually had to like propose the idea. And I was like, can I create this one week, like this immersion course and all that stuff. And every door just kept being open. And then I turned, I reached out to Lighthouse and I was like, hey, is it okay if I bring a group of college students? And you guys were great. So yes, we love college students. Greatest group every year. Yeah. I always say we if you get group. to serve with the Barry group, you will not regret it. Yeah, it's been a great group yeah. every single year. Every year. Um, so let's go back, um, Susan, to pediatric medicine, um, the time you spent there. Um, some of the things you learned. So what were some of the things you learned about just the dynamics in a family when a child's on treatment? Uh, what are some of the things you, you observed and learned through that? So we we learned um, people respond very differently, right? Families, um, you know, some families, like there's some things you learn to expect, like shock at initial diagnosis and, and different things. Um, and then sometimes some denial, you know, um, and then how people respond is it's it's so all over the place because it depends on the age of the kids did they have any warning all of that and so what we would really uh what we realized was that parents and the children and the siblings if they're there although oftentimes they weren't necessarily there that all of those people had um that the way that they responded we had to be able to meet them where they were at and then kind of walk through them to figure out how can we best help. And some people wanted lots of education and, and intervention. Other people were like, we actually need some space. So it's, it's, you couldn't really predict except for to know that it's completely unpredictable with mm. it. If that, does that, if that makes sense, like as a pediatric consult, you're walking into a room. So we would be called by the doctors because there was oftentimes some sort of reason they needed a consult. Like we didn't visit every single family. Mm-hmm. So that also uh, influences, you know, not every single child would have a pediatric psych consult. Yeah. So we were usually called in because there was an issue that they were worried about. You mentioned siblings and I, and it may be the same all over the place, but are there, are there some common psychological effects that, that you've noticed in the siblings of the children on treatment? Yeah. So, um, one thing is when I was on my, the peds, when I was going directly into the hospitals, one thing I did notice is that we um, oftentimes our, our treatment and stuff wasn't really geared towards the siblings, right? Because we were focused on the child and treatment. But it was later when I was working um, at the Medical College of Georgia and I got really immersed in family dynamics and therapy and that we started to then in an outpatient play unit, we would tend to work more with the whole family. So for siblings, there's so many different um, feelings that they go through, many of them the same things that the parents go through, but some of them are kind of different. So one of the most common um, is fear. Uh, They tend to have fear about what's going to happen to their sibling. Um, They also, depending on the age, um, they might have fear that it's contagious. 
Um, like you have to always look at developmentally how the age um, and really common feeling that a lot of um, siblings have is guilt. Um, sometimes they feel, again, age plays a role in this, but sometimes they think um, they could have magical thinking. They might think that they caused the, the cancer. Maybe they were, they said something mean, they were mad at their sibling. Um, they can feel guilt over being the one that um, is healthy, you know, mm -hmm. of this feeling of like, why am I not the one that is sick? Um, why am I able to go to school, go to events, a lot of guilt, a lot of guilt. Of I can see that for um, for a lot of older siblings, right, that have a little bit more comprehension of what's going on and they can really kind of process through. I can see that really affecting some siblings that are maybe the big sisters or big brothers. Yes. So that so age, right, because um, the younger kids don't really, they don't feel as much of that guilt. Um, but the, as you, especially when you hit your like preteens and teenagers, um, and, and they really can feel like I shouldn't have fun, you know, like how could I go do something and enjoy it while my sibling is not able to do those same things. That is a really, really common thing. Um, other things is, you know, maybe some anger, um, maybe some, uh, resentment, um, jealousy, and that some of these feelings can be really hard for them to talk about because they don't want to necessarily say, necessarily say I'm jealous because you're spending more time with my sibling um, because then they feel selfish, right? But there can be, it's a pretty common thing, you know, to feel a little bit jealous of some of the um, attention. Sometimes when they're young, they don't recognize like being in the hospital is not fun at all. Like they might think, oh, you get to be with mom and dad and you get gifts and you don't have to go to school. Like they don't kind of recognize. So they they may have some jealousy over imagining things um, as being easier, you know, than they are. So it's you're always mediating all of these reactions by the age of the sibling. I would guess with some of the older siblings that are feeling jealous and things, then they feel more guilt over the feelings that they're feeling. So it's like a cycle of now I'm feeling guilty mm -hmm. because I, I know this is probably not a good way to feel like I shouldn't be jealous and I shouldn't, you know, and now it's a whole cycle of now I feel bad about the feelings that I have. Exactly. Yes. So it, it's, it's cycles and it builds upon themselves. Um, so then they feel more guilty and then, and then they feel like they can't share those feelings. Um, because then they're like, that makes, you know, like, oh, wow, how horrible of a person am I that I'm having these, these jealous feelings while my sibling is, you know, in the fight for their life. Like, so there's a lot of these emotions that can go on. Um, they also may feel more um, isolated. Uh, this could be because um, they may, one, they may be missing their sibling if their sibling's out at the hospital. Um <laughs> It also, they may not be able to do as much socially because of fear of bringing infection home. So they may not see their friends as much or, you know, there there can be various things um, that they used to be able to do, but now they can't. Maybe a parent can't take them to some events or different things like that. Um, but it's also important to realize that there can be some positive things, you know, that psychologically that come out as well, like, uh, you know, getting closer to their families, developing some resilience, um, even like as adults facing something that's life-threatening, we can reevaluate our priorities. Um, older kids can do that as well. Yeah. So, 
Susan, as a parent, because these are all things that, um, I, you know, are how a kid's processing, right? It's a lot of that's internal. So as a parent, um, how, how do you pick up on this stuff? Are there patterns? Um, are there any behavioral indicators, like things that are going to clue them off to, okay, I need to pay more attention because there's this, I've noticed this, like, what is, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, as parents, we can pay, try to, one of the things that we can always think about is if you start to notice something, a change, something that is different than how it used to be. Um, for instance, uh, school performance. If you have a kid that used to, you know, have all A's and now has C's, that can be a marker. But also if you had a student that used to be a C student and now they're overperforming, like mm. a kind of a change in behavior, um, looking for some of the classic signs of depression, um, which includes uh, weight gain or weight loss, or for children, if they're not meeting their sort of growth objectives, you know, so they stay the same weight, but they're not, um, you know, they, but they should be gaining weight. Um, if they, sometimes people don't realize that irritability or anger is also um, one of the ways that depression can manifest. Hmm. So like we are easier to recognize sadness and crying, um, but yeah. also it can just be, they get moody and irritable and throw temper tantrums. Um, because that can be a symptom of depression. Um, let's see if they suddenly regress in age. Uh, so they start bedwetting again or temper tantrums, those sorts of things kind of are the, the big markers. But the last one that I want to say is, cause this is the one that sometimes people miss is if suddenly the child is like, everything's perfect, you know, like I'm great. I'm okay. I have no problems. You don't need to worry about me like kind of being too perfect because all kids have bad days, rough days. And, and that may be they're trying to pretend that everything's okay so that they're not causing any more stress to their parents. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot on a kid. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked about guilt a little bit already. I think mom guilt is just a normal, I mean, mom guilt's a thing in the best of times with the best of circumstances, but um, there's such a, there's an attention imbalance that you can't as a parent control when your child's on treatment. Even if you're very aware of it and you try really hard, you have one kid that probably needs you more and it more emergency, like right that moment needs you more. Um, how do you reconcile that in your head as a parent when you, you see it, but you're like, but one child is going through treatment. My other kids are not. Um, how, how, what help do you, what advice do you have for those parents out there? I think that, um, the, the reality of that mom guilt and that dad guilt of that, that parent guilt, um, I think the biggest antidote for guilt, um, for parents is that we need to give ourselves grace. You know, this, this idea of recognizing that, like, even as I talk about the things that siblings you have to watch out for. I'm always aware of, I don't want to be causing a parent to feel this extra, like, oh no, I'm messing up over here because, um, you have to realize that, you know, as parents, you know, they're everybody, you know, they're doing the best that they can at the moment with the resources that you have, with the demands that you have of that season in life, you are doing the very, very best that you can. And I think for that guilt to think about, okay, this is a season. 
This is a season of life where this child is going to need more. Um, and there's seasons of life worth all of us where somebody in our life might need more. It could be an aging parent. Um, it could be uh, an illness of, of a spouse, you know, but that there's these seasons and that it's um, that this it makes sense and not to, to try not to feel guilty and to give yourself some grace about that. Um, and and the thing I always when I would work with parents um, would talk about is just recognizing, you know what? You're doing the best that you can. This is a season. Um, and there are some things you can do to try to mediate that with your kids, but importantly, to really try to give yourself grace as you navigate this, because guilt and beating yourself up does not do anything but make you feel worse. Yeah. You talked about, you just mentioned it, mediating things a little bit, right? So what are some strategies for parents to, to manage these things with their kids? Um, kids, I mean, child on treatment of siblings, but how how what are the things they can implement that's going to help their well-being psychologically to work through some of this stuff so um there's actually there's a lot of research out there about like kind of how to specifically help siblings um mm -hmm. but this holds for all all kids um one of the most important things that that we know is uh, attention and acknowledgement so specifically like being very direct and sharing with your kids even the things like you know what? I wish I could be there. I I, I know um, I understand that you wish I could be here at this event. Say, for instance, you know they're missing an event, um, but that to to let them know, I I understand that you want me there. I wish I could be there, um, and to reassure them, acknowledge that that need that they have it makes sense, right? That it's not like a they shouldn't feel bad about wishing their parent was there or something like that. Yeah. Um, there's like a couple of other things like people can do is, again, it's like within when it's possible, you know, um, if you try to carve out to have some one on one time with each kid. Um, but it does is a lot of times kids for even if it's five or 10 minutes of like concentrated time um, that goes a long way. A lot of times kids after about 10 minutes and think about teenagers after about five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, they're done. Yeah. I yeah. want to go they're do my thing. You. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and it can be like um, a FaceTime call if you're not there, a walk or, around the block. Uh, you know, um, it can be with teens, you can do texting, right? It can even be like you're just texting through the day. Like there's various ways that you can just kind of reach out to them. Um, you can also do like little things, you know, like in younger kids putting a note in their, in their lunchbox. You know, it's like little things so that they know that you're thinking about them. Um, and importantly, each kid is going to have a different love language, right? Or a different way, how, how they most feel connected and loved, because we can tell our kids, I love you. I love you so much. I love all of y'all, you know, um, but each of them find, you have to figure out what's the way that matters the most to that kid, um, yeah. and, and meet them in that way. You mentioned missing events. I still, I think Max, my oldest, he's 24, but I think he still remembers the field trip to the aquarium in second grade that I was not there because Carter was in the middle of diagnosis. And we joke about it now, like he'll bring it up as a joke, but I am always very conscious that he's 24 and he's still like that just kind of comes up every once in a while. And we talk, the parents that we meet, 
that we talk to, there's always something like, I missed this. I wasn't there for this. I, you know, as a parent, you're supposed to be there for the big events. You're supposed to be able to do what you say you're going to do and be where you're supposed to be. And that's one of the th- hardest things, I think, is that you don't get to control that anymore, right? You, you're just going with the child on treatment. And if that conflicts with the big event, you don't get to go to the big event. So what advice do you have for parents that are navigating that? They're just missing out on milestones for their other kids that is, again, adding to the guilt and adding just to kind of the pressure. I think um, one thing to really kind of, um, because that sort of guilt that that sticks with, like you're talking about, you remember it even years later, right? Um, is that in any relation, in any situation, even with, if you, if no child is, is in, in treatment, right? There are times that parents can't make it to every single event, right? There's times that, um, you know, it could be somebody stationed overseas or, you know, two people, two kids have an event at the exact same time, you know, um, but we put ourselves under this enormous pressure to be there for everything, right? So, um, but there are some things that's, that I would suggest one is sometimes you can um, video now with our technology, there's things that we can do that you didn't used to be able to do. You could have somebody there video kind of the event, say, I, I even know um, times people have like recorded somebody in a play, like they recorded the entire play. So the parents could then come back um, and then you come back and you can sit and watch that. Um, or you can have somebody FaceTime while they're, you know, getting an award or something like that. You can use technology to try to be there in some way. And then even then, sometimes that's not possible. Um, we suggest doing things like you could try to do like a, like a, it's not really a redo, but like something else to mark the specialness of whatever that occasion was, you know, um, like you schedule something at a different time, something special, you know, to be like, I'm so, I, I really wish I could be there. I'm sorry I wasn't able to be there. Um, but can we create something else special, you know, just the two of you or even the family to do, to kind of still mark whatever that celebration was. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of like, and then again, to get, to let go of that guilt because that guilt, you know, it holds on and, 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 um, it can fester, but there's ways we can try to still meet the need of that child, that this was something special that they wanted you to be a part of and find a way to be creative about being a part of it, even if it's not at the exact same time, if that makes sense. Yeah. I love the reminder that I think sometimes when your kid's on treatment, you idealize what life would be like if they weren't. And you hit on something so important. I don't think we realize that life wasn't going to be you weren't going to be able to be everywhere all the time in a regular world. Yeah, I think anyway, you just yeah. you just feel so bad that this is happening that you attribute everything to, well, my my kid's on treatment, my kid's sick, so this is why all this stuff is happening. And you forget, I guess, in the moment that you weren't going to be everywhere all the time. Nothing was it wasn't going to be a perfect scenario if they weren't sick. Like things were still going to happen. That is a really good reminder. I didn't really think about it that yeah, way. Yeah, we still are going to miss certain yeah. things. Right. Yeah. It's going to happen because there's just life. Right. There's, you know, a business trip or two kids have something scheduled the exact same time. Or I mean, there's just all there's different reasons um, for sure. So, um, Susan, this has been really um, helpful. Thank you so much for making time. I love that we got to talk about siblings. Um, I just love that we get to spend some time thinking about them because oftentimes 
we just don't get to, um, and they don't get thought of. And, and so I love that we were able to do that for these families that are listening. So thanks for making some time and digging in with us on this. You're um, such a great friend to Lighthouse, and uh, we're just really thankful we get to spend some time with you on the podcast. All right. Thank you so much. And you know what? I have to say one thing I love about Lighthouse Retreats is that you all take care of the whole family yeah. um, and the siblings and everybody. And that, I think, is one of the many beautiful, magical things about Lighthouse. And I have loved talking to you guys. Hey, as I said, Susan is one of our favorites. Loved getting to see her today and learn from her a little bit. Grateful for all of you. We will see you next time on the Lighthouse Podcast.